We are, of course, in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, we'll be finishing the chapter from verse 13 through 17. <clears throat> but a bit of a review here. In the first section of Matthew chapter 3, we, we spent a fair bit of time talking about repentance and the judgment to come, which is revealed, uh, reserved rather, for the unbelieving and the unrepentant. As we examine the scriptures, those who die in this world rejecting the sacrifice of Christ will be ultimately judged for their own sin uh, in order to satisfy justice. You know, there's, there's nothing unjust about a sinner paying the consequences for his own sin. That may be unjust in Western culture today, uh, but in reality, there's nothing unjust about it. Amen? Uh, when criminals pay the consequences for their crimes, we, we know that to be justice. We know that to be a good thing. But there is another form of divine justice where God, the righteous judge, the lawmaker, who has been offended by sinners, offers his sinless life in the place of the sinner, where he, he substitutes himself to be judged in our place and then pay our penalty. This God has done for us, and his gift is granted to all who repent and trust in Christ. But the unrepentant and unbelieving will pay their own penalty. Either way, either way, justice will be satisfied and righteousness is accomplished. That is essentially the warning that we find embedded in John's message, was it not? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. His axe is laid at the root. His winnowing fan is in his hand. Okay. There's repent or else. And in fact, when you turn to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, Jesus' message to the churches, almost all of them say Jesus' words, not mine, repent or else. The offer is made, take it or leave it. Take it or leave it. Yeah. So the coming of Christ is only good news to those who repent and trust in him. For the believer, he is the merciful savior. For the unbeliever, he is their righteous judge. Yeah. And so John the Baptist came in advance. He's preparing Israel for the coming of their Messiah. He's calling them to repentance. And those who identify with his preaching, who believe that they, that they need to repent because of their sin, those are the ones who are baptized to symbolize that commitment. Now, our story is really starting to begin now. And uh, John has been at the river. We don't know for how long exactly uh, before Jesus came to him, we only know that he's been doing this in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign. Uh, I imagine that he was there for some months uh, because it takes time in a world without uh, phones, Facebook, and the rest uh, for word to get out. Amen? And so word has spread throughout all of the regions of Israel, North, Galilee in the north, Judah in the south, even the Decapolis, a Roman province on the other side of the river, <clears throat> all those people are coming to him. So it's been a while, but now things are going to change. So let's read our text this morning. If you're able, please stand in honor of God's word. I'll be reading to you out of the New King James Version. Matthew tells us, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? 
But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for the testimony of your word. Lord, I thank you for the history, the reality of that all that we have in Christ. I just pray, Lord, as we discuss your word this morning, as we look deeper into it, that you would inform us, Lord, that you would inspire faith. Lord, teach us, we pray. And Lord, as we talk about the Trinity, um, Lord, it's essential that we understand what we can, the truths that are available to us in the word, that we might better understand our God and rightfully worship him, worship you, Lord. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. All right. Things are going to happen fast now. We've got the temptation of Christ. We've got the Sermon on the Mount, the healing of the leper. Great stuff. All right, please return with me to verse 13. Now, I have the, the passage on the screen. Um, that is for convenience. It's not so that you can um, stop bringing your Bible to church or studying on your own. Uh, one of the favorite sounds of a pastor is the turning of Bible pages and uh, you following along and all that. Uh, I did this because um, parents with children trying to tend to them and hold a Bible and keep track of where we're at in the text. So if you're not a parent with children, don't look at the screen. <laughs> I'm kidding. So Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized. So Jesus was currently living in the northern province of Galilee in the city of Nazareth. He has traveled south some miles to where John was baptizing. He's probably still uh, east of um, Jericho uh, at a tributary uh, to the Jordan River. John's gospel. Now, when I say John's gospel, I don't mean John the Baptist's gospel. They're two different people, okay? In John's gospel, uh, in chapter 128, it refers to the location as Bethabara, which means the fairy house. That's not to be confused with a house full of uh, mystical winged creatures. Uh, it's a Ford uh, and not a Ford truck. It's a, a pontoon kind of thing for you young people that was used to cross the river. Okay? Uh, this particular location was on the road that traveled north and south between uh, Galilee and, the, and, and Judah. Uh, but it, the funny thing is, is that it was on the eastern side of the river outside of Israel. So in other words, Jews would leave Jerusalem and walk for miles east, cross the river, travel north up the east side in Roman territory, and just at the base of the Sea of Galilee, they would cross over west into Galilee. Why would they do that? It's very strange. If John were sent to the Jews, why would he be baptizing outside the country of the Jews? You see, Jews of that time who were infected by the snobbery and the racism of rabbinical Judaism, they avoided going through the province of Samaria that separated Judah and the Galilee. So they would travel north and south on this particular highway, 
that traveled, or rather that traversed Samaria on the eastern border of the Jordan. The Jews, as we know from history, they, they despised the Samaritans because they were a mixed race of people. Uh, they, were, they were part Jews and they were part Gentiles. And there's some history there. If you've read the book of Nehemiah, uh, you know that that's when that, uh, the disputes really began. And uh, it carried on clear into the first century. And uh, things were ugly between them. Uh, the issue, this particular issue, comes out mostly in the book of John. Uh, because Jesus began to travel through Samaria because uh, he had no use for the traditions of men. He obviously had no, no use for racism. Uh, we find him there in John 4 at, the, the, uh, the, at Jacob's well, ministering to the Samaritan woman. And then he stays in Samaria and he preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. And uh, bucking the system. We love Jesus for that, don't we? All you libertarians out there. Yeah. So be that as it may, John is, is baptizing and he's preaching in an area where there's, there's not just lots of water, but there's lots of Jews um, who are going out of their way to avoid Samaritans. And according to John's gospel, John the Baptist had his disciples with him. John wasn't, uh, he began, of course, probably alone, but over time he established a group of disciples. And among those men were John, the brother of James, and Andrew, the brother of Peter. We don't want to forget that they were there and they watched what's about to happen next. So in front of all these people, Jesus went down to the water to be baptized. And John tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Are you coming to me? So before now, John didn't know for certain that his cousin Jesus was the Messiah, but he was certainly suspect. And it's because of the first part of Matthew's gospel, the first part of Luke's gospel, where all of that probably came from, his suspicions. You know, his parents had certainly told him about Mary conceiving by the Holy Spirit before she had known a man, and how his mother Elizabeth knew that Jesus was her Lord the very moment she heard Mary's voice when she came to visit her, even though Jesus was in her womb. So John was pretty sure, but it, it would not be indefinitely or certainly confirmed until the Holy Spirit rested upon him. In fact, the Lord told him, you're going to know for certain when you see the Holy Spirit rest upon the individual that is the Messiah. And so with his suspicions high, he tries to prevent Jesus from being baptized. You know, if Jesus is the Messiah, it only seemed proper to be baptized by him. Wouldn't you feel a little awkward baptizing the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of Israel? Yeah. Also, what would make it awkward is, <clears throat> as far as John understood, his baptism was a baptism of repentance because of the remission of sins. But Jesus had no sin to speak of, and therefore he had nothing to repent of. So why would he come to be baptized? Verse 15. So Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John allowed him, that is, he baptized him. So the baptism of Jesus was not a matter of sin and repentance on his part, but he says this is an issue of fulfilling all righteousness. Well, the question is, how would Jesus' baptism fulfill 
all righteousness. You know, it can't be the righteousness that has been prescribed in the law of Moses because the law of Moses says nothing about baptism, right? I've read it many times, and uh, it's just not there. There's nothing said. There's nothing prescribed. There's nothing even implied about water baptism. It's completely non-existent. So Jesus could not have been somehow fulfilling you know, any legal requirements that would be stated in the law. His baptism must pertain to some other issue of righteousness. Now, <clears throat> when we go through the Gospels, there are times when I think, thanks for explaining yourself, Jesus. This is one of those times. Jesus does not say, what I mean, John, is this. Now, John just goes, okay, and he baptizes Jesus. So either John understood, or he just was being obedient. Okay? Or maybe he understood a little bit, but not all of it. Okay? Um, but Jesus didn't explain himself. So what does it mean? <clears throat> well, I have a, a guess. Can I share my guess with you? Okay. If, um, if, you, if you study, you know, 10 of the most um, distinguished scholars, uh, biblical scholars, you could very potentially have 10 different opinions about what this is all about. Uh, but what is good, I believe, is that all of them look back in hindsight of the rest of the information that we have in the New Testament, okay? And they look back to the baptism of Jesus. So let me at least give you what I believe is going on here. What we know of baptism is that baptism is an issue of identification. You know, the people were being baptized to identify with John's preaching of repentance. But Jesus could not identify with them in their baptism because, as we've said, he never sinned, nothing to repent of. So what is it that Jesus would be identifying with? Well, I believe it's probably the opposite of what the people were identifying with. The people were being baptized because of their unrighteousness. Jesus was being baptized because of his righteousness. They were being baptized because of their poverty in terms of righteousness. Jesus was baptized as the provision for their righteousness. They were baptized to demonstrate their need for a savior. Jesus was baptized to demonstrate that he was the savior, that he was the savior. Um, he came to seek and save the lost, right? You should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. You see, it was after Jesus' baptism that his earthly ministry begins. It's after that, okay? I believe that Jesus' baptism fulfills the righteousness of his Father's commission to be the sinner's righteousness. He's identifying with all of that, his Father's commission. God sent him to be our righteousness. He would die for our unrighteousness, and then he would impute his true righteousness to us. That's, I believe, how he would fulfill all righteousness. Now, obviously, we can't learn that from the passage alone, but it's as we gather information from the scriptures, especially from passages like this, uh, Romans 3, 2 Corinthians 5, um, the book of Galatians, 1 Peter 3, 18. It's interesting, you know, in, in Romans 3, 21 20 through 26, Paul tells us that the sacrifice of Christ was a demonstration of God's righteousness to show that he is just or righteous when he declares the believing sinner righteous. God proves himself to be righteous in the sacrifice of Christ. And then when he declares us to be righteous, 
when we trust in Christ. So I believe that Jesus' baptism looked forward to the fulfillment of all righteousness, which demonstrates and fulfills God's righteousness by imputing that to the sinner. You know, Paul said he had no righteousness of his own, zero. No righteousness according to the law, but all of his righteousness was of Christ. It was a foreign righteousness. Romans 3.21 through 22 says, but now, now mind you, this is looking back to the righteousness the Jews were trying to achieve by keeping the law of Moses. And Paul says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Isn't that sweet? That transition in the book of Romans is the most thrilling transition in all of Scripture. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law. Good stuff. Let's move on. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. Now, what, what occurred immediately after Jesus came out of the water, this is not symbolic. It's, it's purely miraculous. Times three, by the way. Notice, the heavens were opened to the Son of God. God the Spirit appeared in bodily form like a dove. And then God the Father spoke from heaven. Three miracles, one after the other in this event. When the heavens were opened, it doesn't mean, understand, it doesn't mean that that the clouds just began to separate. I think that's oftentimes because of the movies, the, the, the idea that we get. That's not what the text is saying. It says that the heavens, plural, were opened. If you're going to try to imagine it, think more like something from a science fiction movie, okay? Uh, something that you've never seen before. Something completely miraculous. If the clouds simply separated from each other, uh, there's really good Greek words to describe that. That's not what happened. Something far more unusual occurred. It could not be explained by natural phenomenon. Whatever happened to the heavens was supernatural. Now, this isn't the first time this has happened in the scriptures. There are other references to it. And every single time, it's miraculous. It's amazing. It indicates that it opened to God's dwelling place in the, heavens of, in the heaven of heavens. In scriptures, we have three heavens. Uh, not like the Mormons have three degrees of heaven. Uh, you know, the bad people go to the lower one and then on your way up. Uh, no, it's talking about the air you breathe. Okay, it's talking about where the stars are. So first heaven, air you breathe. Stars, second heaven. The third heaven is what? God's dwelling place. God's dwelling place. So what is happening is his dwelling place is open. It makes sense because it was out of this opening in the heaven that the Holy Spirit emerged and descended. So the people were witnessing something that was miraculous. And here the text says that the Spirit descended like a dove. But Luke 3.22 adds that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. What is going on? What is going on? Well, just as angels do not have human bodies, I know some people think they do. Uh, they do not. Jesus said that all angels are spirits. And in John's gospel, he says, a spirit does not have flesh and bone. Okay, so they can appear as though they have a body, but they do not. The Holy Spirit does not have a body. He doesn't have parts, but he appeared like a dove. 
Now, Matthew and Luke do not say that the Holy Spirit had the body of a dove, but that it appeared that way. So like a dove, understand, this is the best description the witnesses could, could provide when they saw what they saw. What did you see? Dude, it was like a, a dove. That's what's going on here. This is, a, this, is, this is trying to describe what it is that they saw, something that resembled something like a dove. And it says, appearing in this manner, the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. In, in John's gospel, in chapter 1, verse 32, we learn that the Holy Spirit remained on Jesus, remained on him. This is important in light of the rest of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit is said to come upon those whom God has appointed to fulfill a certain task. The Spirit coming upon them often marked the beginning of their ministry. It, it initiated their calling. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon prophets to prophesy. He came upon priests to minister and upon kings to rule. You remember, I love it, the story of Saul says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he rallied the troops of Israel and then he killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. It's a great story. Delivering Israel. But he wasn't able to do that the way that he did it without the Holy Spirit empowering him. Okay? In the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit come on believers in order to empower their witness for Christ to the world. We see that in Acts chapter 2, 4, 7, 10, 17, and on and on it goes in the book of Acts. He also comes upon believers to empower their service for Christ in the church. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. But also he comes upon the believer to empower people to be more like Christ in their lives. Romans chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 3. How many of you guys notice that without the Holy Spirit, you just are kind of lame spiritually? You get it, don't you? You get it. But why would the Holy Spirit have to come upon the Son of God, who in his divine nature lacked no power of any kind for anything? What is that all about? Well, the Son of God did not come to earth to live as God. Imagine if he had. Life would have looked a lot different for Jesus, right? For starters, he wouldn't have been born in a feeding trough, right? In a barn or a cave or a dugout in the ground. If he had come as God to live among us, things would have been very, very different. He didn't come that way. He didn't come to exude his power over nature. His father sent him to live as a man while possessing all the power of God. While on earth, Jesus remained, we would say, theologically, we would say passive in his deity. His divine nature was not active in his earthly ministry. Now, I've read some pretty wacky descriptions of this that, you know, somehow he... Uh, he emptied himself. I've heard that one. Uh, look, if Jesus emptied himself of his divinity, he was not who he says he was. Okay? He didn't empty himself of his divinity. He was fully God, and he was fully man. Uh, he wasn't uh, asleep, his divine nature. It wasn't unconscious. For uh, I've read someplace that God does not sleep nor slumber. Amen? He just, his divine nature simply was not active. But in his humanity, his human nature, he was like us in every way but sin. Okay? He wasn't a superhuman with superhuman strength or abilities. He was a man like us with a brain and a body that was subject to all the physical and emotional weaknesses of humanity. Okay? He could get sick. He could suffer pain. He got tired. Do you remember? 
He got hungry. He was thirsty. He got sad. He got angry. He got frustrated, though he never sinned. Jesus was God in human flesh, but he lived among us as we are. He had to be dependent on the Spirit to fulfill his mission, to perform miracles, to teach with authority, to suffer on the cross, and to rise from the dead. He was like us. Jesus, in his earthly life as a man, he demonstrated what it is to be a man who is totally dependent on God. Totally dependent. Jesus said this. He said, most assuredly, in the Greek, it's actually amen, amen. It's a double affirmation. Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. What does John 15 say about us? Apart from him, we can do nothing. Jesus is saying, I can do nothing. The son, rather speaking about himself, can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the father do, for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. It's not that Jesus was incapable. Okay? It's, not, it's just that doing thing out of his own power would violate the purpose for which he came. Again, in John 5.30, Jesus said, I can do nothing of myself. In John 8.28, Jesus said, I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. So all that Jesus did and taught were by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his own might. So Jesus didn't come to exert his own power in the world. That's not why he came. He came to demonstrate to us total dependence on God as he was empowered by the Spirit. So as a man, to do what God had called him to do, he needed the Holy Spirit for witness, for service, for his life. So if Jesus needed the Spirit for all of that, how much more you and I? How much more you and I? Well, there's no magic formula to receiving the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You see any magic in the text? No. You guys, the Christian life is impossible to live without the Holy Spirit. Without his rule over our lives and his power in our deeds, we're no better than an unbeliever. We need him. We might be redeemed, but we're just powerless. But for those who keep on asking and seeking and knocking, the Father will give you his spirit so that you might live for his glory to fill you, empower you. It's all part of his plan. But you must be humble. You must recognize your need for the Holy Spirit. You must yield to his will. Let's return to the text. After the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus and remained upon him, Matthew records, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What a sweet miracle. What a sweet miracle. Who's he talking to? I think he's talking to a lot of people at this point. It's the testimony of the father about his son to John the Baptist, the people on the banks of the Jordan, and to Jesus himself. It it validated John's ministry and preaching as the the Messiah's forerunner. Validates it all. John wasn't crazy after all. He may have looked crazy, but he wasn't. 
He was the voice of the one calling in the desert to prepare the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah had prophesied 700 years earlier. It validated John's message to the people, his call to repentance and the baptism he offered. It also testified to all the witnesses on the banks of the Jordan that the person standing in the water with John really was not one of them, exactly, but that he was the Son of God, that he was Messiah, he was King of Israel. And I could imagine that you know, Jews being raised in the synagogues, first in the pedagogues, and then every Sabbath in the synagogue, that when they heard the voice, that the second psalm stood out to them, which says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Affirming the text. And then finally, the testimony of the father was confirmation to Jesus. His father loved him and was well pleased with him. There's a difference, you know between loving your child and being pleased with them, right? All of us love our children, but we're not always well pleased with them. But with Jesus, there was never a moment when his father was not infinitely well pleased with his son. He's the man for the job, isn't he? He's the one. So the baptism, the Holy Spirit, the father's testimony, this is it. This is the turning point in Jesus's life. His formative years are past. He's proven himself as a man. And now it's time to execute his father's plan. It's time. Now, before we uh, wrap things up, I want to look back at the last two verses of the chapter here to address uh, what is one of the most essential doctrines of Christian theology. Did you catch it in the text? It's it's this one, the Trinity, the Trinity. Our, Our text so far in the last two verses mentions three persons, important persons, We have Jesus in his baptism. We have the Holy Spirit in his descending and and filling and empowering. And we have the testimony of the Father. And we use that in our baptismal formula, don't we? Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Now notice in the text, of course, we have three distinct persons. Each are doing three different things. And at one point, they're all in three different locations, as it were, aren't they? God in heaven, God the Father in heaven, God the Spirit in the sky, and God the Son in the water. Yeah. Three distinct persons fulfilling three different roles. But throughout the Bible, these three persons are said to be one indivisible God who is equal in all of his attributes. Yeah. This doctrine is absolutely essential to the faith. God is undeniably a trinity, a triunity, a unity of three. This doctrine, like a handful of others, understand this is worth giving your life for. This doctrine is worth dying for. The Bible presents God to us. What is the most important thing that you can believe? It's God, but it's who God is. The scriptures present him to us in this manner It's not something invented by tradition. It's not borrowed from pagan religion. There are no such things as trinities in pagan religion anyway, as some falsely have claimed, especially of late. And this doctrine certainly wasn't first introduced at the Nicene Creed in the 4th century AD. It may have been articulated, but it was not invented. There are three essential things about the Trinity that we have to understand, three of them. First, the Bible clearly teaches that there is but one divine nature or essence. That is, there's only one God. There is only one God. Deuteronomy 
6, 4, Isaiah 43, 10. I love how snarky Isaiah is about this whole issue of God's unity. He's like, you think there's another, you really think there's another God out there? And then God chimes in. He's like, well, where is he? I don't know of another one. He says, before me, there was no God formed and there will never be one after me. There's only one God. Many, many passages. Second, the Bible also teaches that the divine nature consists of a plurality of persons who are distinct from one another. This plurality of persons is seen all over the scripture. Some people say, well, not in the Old Testament. That's a bunch of baloney. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We can begin right there at the very beginning. Chapter 11, verse 4. Isaiah 6, verse 8. And then third and finally, the Bible teaches that all three persons, though distinct, are equal. They're equal. Philippians 2, 6 and 2 Corinthians 3, 17, Acts 5, 3, and on and on and on. The persons of the Trinity we know of as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as we see in our text. And all three persons of the Trinity, they're mentioned in other passages like this. Just a few. How many does it take? Yeah. Isaiah 48 is one of my favorite in regard to the three persons mentioned. Let's go there real quick. Except I don't have, I only have a New Testament with Psalms. Who's going to read it out loud to the congregation? BJ, would you do it? You're, you're acquainted with reading in front of people. Isaiah 48, 16. Read it loud and proud. The Lord God and his spirit have sent me. Three people. The Lord God and his spirit have sent me. God the Son is speaking. It's a powerful text. Among the three persons, there's no varying degrees of deity. There's no varying degrees of glory. There's no varying degrees of honor. Jesus said, if you do not honor me as you honor my Father, you don't honor him. There's no varying degrees. No one person in the Trinity has more knowledge or power than another. One is not more or less God than the other. They are co-equal in all of their attributes, their power, majesty, knowledge, eternality, infinitude, and love, completely equal. Every characteristic of deity is attributed to all persons of the Trinity, co-equal in nature, which means they are all equally God even though they remain distinct in their persons. This truth about the Trinity, as we find it in the Bible, it's always going to be difficult to grasp. But there is never a contradiction from Genesis to Revelation about his nature and his persons. Our ability to understand the Trinity is beyond human reason, but it's not contrary to reason. We're just not smart enough. Amen? And because God is truly unique in the absolute sense of the word, he is one of a kind. He is one of a kind with no other likeness. So we have really nothing else to compare him to. No explanation is sufficient. No analogy is synonymous. I don't even like analogies about the Trinity. Most of them communicate heresy, by the way. No illustration can fully represent. As the late Dr. Lockridge once said, In his amazing doxology of Christ, he says, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. We can certainly know facts about God, but because he is eternal and infinite, our knowledge about him is crippled by severe limitations. He is as he reveals himself in the scriptures, which we can understand, but what is revealed about him is infinitely true. 
infinitely true, which is beyond our reach. Faith, I believe, embraces all of God while the intellect falls short. If this were not so, God would take his place with the mundane, among the other things that we have figured out and grown used to and become bored with. But because he transcends our ability to fully comprehend him, as his beauty and his majesty extend beyond the horizon of our intellect, he will forever exhaust the academic. He will baffle the philosopher and mesmerize the poet. Yeah. There will always be more to worship. He is a deep and fascinating mystery to us, yet he is warm and personal. He is transcendent, but present. He is holy, but he is tender. He is Trinity, consisting of Father, of Son, and Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. If you do not believe in the Trinity, you do not believe in God. If you do not believe in the Trinity, you do not believe in God, because that is what he is. He said, I am that I am. And he's not Popeye. Okay. To illustrate this for you, there is but one of me. Amen? Thank God. <laughs> My name is Benjamin Griffin Parkin. Yes, I was named after a Swedish mystical beast. I'm a white male at six foot one inches, 205 pounds. I have blonde hair and freckles. I was born in Sheridan, Wyoming to Rodney and Naomi Parkin on October 6, 1976, which makes me very young. Now, those are a number of facts about my identity. They, they are not negotiable. They're not options. They're not even beliefs or preferences. Those are things true about me. And if you were tasked with picking me up from the airport, but you believe that I was a Chinese female at five foot three inches and 120 pounds, having black hair and dark skin, born in Hong Kong in 1945, it wouldn't be me that you picked up from the airport. God is not what we want him to be. He is not what we would like him to be. He is what he is eternally and unchangeably. You guys, he is Trinity. That is how he has revealed himself to us. So if you believe in a non-Trinitarian God, you do not believe in the God of the Bible. You do not. You are lost, and you are yet to be found by him. Early in the history of the church, there were a number of heretics, that is, false teachers. And perhaps the most dangerous among them was a man named Arius, who denied the Trinity and said that Jesus was but an exalted man, a creature. In opposition to Arius, a man named Athanasius, in the middle of the fourth century, by careful study of the scriptures, inspired the words of what is called the Athanasian Creed. He didn't write it, but he suffered greatly for what he insisted the scriptures taught. It's a great story about Athanasius. He came to the Council of Nicaea as an assistant to a bishop at 29 years old, and he influenced the writing of the entire creed at 29. He suffered greatly for what he insisted. In fact, the epithet on his tomb reads, Athanasius contra mundum, Athanasius against the world. What a stud. Yeah. I would like to read the creed that he inspired so long ago. It's a rather long creed. I want you to listen carefully. Creeds are important. His creed is very important, the Nicene Creed. And I'll close with this. I do want you to note that when he uses the phrase, the Catholic faith, he does not mean the Catholic Church as we know it today, which did not exist uh, in his day. By Catholic, he means the universal church, which, which consists of all those who believe in the doctrine passed down from Jesus to the apostles. Listen carefully. Here's the creed. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Anyone who does not keep it 
whole and unbroken, will doubtless perish eternally. Now this is the Catholic faith, that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable, the Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. It reads like a doxology, doesn't it? The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet, there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings. There is but one uncreated and immeasurable, immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty. The Son is almighty. The Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings. There is but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords. There is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord. So Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers, there is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as was said earlier, we must worship their Trinity in their unity and their unity in their Trinity. Anyone then who desires to be saved should think thus about the Trinity. Amen? Today, the best theologians in the world refer to the Athanasian Creed because of its clarity. And you can see in there, he's actually answering and rebutting things that were stated. They are, rather, to the Arian heresy. Yeah. He says, but it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. There's too much there to read. He says, this is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. So family, whatever we do, we must get God right. Amen. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. I'll get you out of here. Encourage you to um, find the Athanasian Creed online and um, also the Nicene Creed. They're very good brief documents about the Christian faith. Let's pray and then we'll close in some worship. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we also thank you for the heresies of the past, because they have forced us as your people to clarify from the scriptures who you are and what we believe about you. Lord, we thank you for the mystery of the Trinity, that it is wonderful beyond us, and that, Lord, in your majesty that is infinite, we'll always find reason to worship you. So, Lord, help us to understand better who you are, that we might worship you more accurately and more fully. Lord, we love you. Amen.